I'm William Law, and this is the Herb Digest podcast. We're delighted to bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. If you're enjoying our podcasts and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please consider a small donation. You can find out details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. As we close out another successful podcast year, I'm really pleased to welcome back Aslai Adintashbash. Aslai is an analyst and a writer and a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Aslai, hello. Hi, Bill. Good to be here and good to be back. Thank you so much. Now, listen, we are going to do our Middle East North Africa year-ender. Really delighted that you're the one doing it uh, with me. 2023 was a pretty grim year, we have to say, but we'll try and find some light in the darkness. I'm going to toss some headlines at you, Asli, and ask you to give a snapshot response to each and every one. Are you ready? Sure. Let's do a lightning rod. As you say, grim year in the world, and in, but a good year for the podcast. Lots of interesting issues you've covered this past year. But let's start. Thank you so much. All right, here we go. Headline number one, January 2023. Liberal democracy hits a wall of outrage with news of Quran burning in Sweden. That's right. Sweden has been the big issue, particularly because it's been waiting for Turkey to ratify its NATO accession bid. And the Quran burning has turned into a big polemic between Turkey and Sweden. But what it really is, two extremes, a country with very uh, permissive laws, a liberal democracy, one of the most open democracies in Europe, versus Turkey, which has increasingly restrictive rules and norms on free speech issues. And I call it men are from Mars, women are from Venus, kind of a dynamic, Turkey and Sweden. They really talk over each other. But I think that at the end of the day, Swedes have understood that these rules and regulations about that, that are that they're very proud of and that are very integral to uh, keeping an open society and democracy alive in Sweden are deeply offensive to Muslims. And I think they have also understood that this is not just happening in a vacuum. There have been allegations that perhaps you know it's it's uh, Russia had some encouragement or pro-Russian figures played a role in it but you know real challenge in terms of free speech and parameters of free speech in an open society I think Swedes have found that they had to show some pragmatism around this issue and couldn't exactly be purists when it comes to Quran burning, given that it was so deeply offensive, not just to Turkey, of course, but to Muslims around. A real challenge. I think we're going to keep having these issues around free speech and and Muslim sensitivities. This is not the last we're hearing of this. Move on to headline number two. In February, shockwaves from twin earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. A huge tragedy, really tens of thousands of people losing their lives, also raising a bunch of governance issues. Why why was shoddy construction allowed despite Turkey's building regulations and 
why is it that uh, government uh, agencies, including disaster relief agencies, so slow in responding despite the millions of dollars allocated every year? But it was really a political story. In the immediate aftermath of the earthquake, there was a sense that, okay, this is it. These are areas Erdogan used to get 60% support, uh, yet the government failed so miserably. That's it for Erdogan and so on and so forth. Remember that Turkish elections was only three months down the road in May of 2023. So most analysts thought this is it. Erdogan's bargain with Turkish society has collapsed. But he has made a remarkable comeback. And that was interesting to watch. In the first 15 days, everyone blamed him. The government is booed and so on and so forth. But he's a political animal in that sense and really uh, street smart when it comes to the sentiments, reading voter behavior. I think this tells us a lot about politics, about voter behavior, about governance issues, all leading to Erdogan reestablishing the governance bargain, the authoritarian bargain he had with Turkish society. In the end, pretty much holding on to his level of support. I think this tells us a lot about the interesting nature of Turkey's competitive illiberal but competitive system yeah and yeah and of course on, on the on the other side of the border uh with syria i mean it was in many ways very useful for assad because he required all that aid to go through damascus and it uh, placed him in a stronger position it was uh a gift of a, a very awful gift for the people awful gift, but he hasn't been able to use it in a the way that he could cash in with normalization with the West and Arab states. I mean, he there was an opportunity, that gift to him, an awful gift. But nonetheless, if the government of Syria had been a, a bit more capable of embracing its own people, I think this would have resulted in a broader wave of normalization. And that didn't come. Mm. Let's move on now to March. Saudi Arabia and Iran kiss and make up, sort of. Big story with also China's involvement in the Middle East and Chinese diplomacy. I think, as you say, this is a sort of kiss and make up. And initially, the reaction from the Biden administration from Washington and Western capitals was eye-rolling and being very dismissive, sounding very dismissive, uh, suggesting that nothing will come of it. But that was not the right messaging from a public relations perspective. So then we saw a recalibration from the West, from Western capitals and said, well, if this works out, we would welcome it. And sure enough, obviously, de-escalation on that front is very, very important for regional stability, especially important at a time like this post-October 7. Do we think it's, it's, it's a sustainable new status quo? I, I think there's ample reason to be skeptical about that. But I think it's very important to, uh, to see that there are channels of conversation, especially when we are once again worried about regional escalation. Uh, but the reality is, when things go 
smoothly in the region, as was the case back in March, perhaps, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran could de-escalate and kiss and make up. But when tensions rise, when there is a, a sort of Iran-backed pro proxies uh, active in Yemen and taking on Western and other targets, then Saudi Arabia would once again need to rely back on its Western partners as security providers and put a distance with Iran. That rhythm will always be there. So I think we can put a question mark in terms of how sustainable this new rapprochement is. Okay, well, hang that question mark on that particular headline and move on to April and Sudan. Two generals go to war. It is really hard to watch what's happening in Sudan. Sad because, also because people were very hopeful after the downfall of Omar al-Bashir. And we saw on streets of Khartoum real demonstration for a different future, a new form of governance, an opportunity for a democratic opening, very clearly expressed by the people of Sudan. But for all types of internal and external reasons to do with uh, various factions in the military, Burhan, General Burhan and Hamedi, we now are watching the continue, some type of a fratricide in Sudan with very grim predictions about the future of the country and an ongoing humanitarian catastrophe with the world's largest number of internally displaced people. We're looking into a population of over 1.2 million refugees in neighboring countries. And of course, outside players have been drawn in. You know, we're hearing a lot about UAE. We're hearing about Iran. We're hearing about Turkey, other players, regional players. Libya. So civilian leaders had no chance in, in Sudan to prove themselves, to come out and provide an alternative to the military rule. The military was really determined to continue on. And right now, that was happening in April, as you have suggested. Right now, it's even worse today. And what's happening in Darfur is once again uh, underlining very serious crimes against humanity, war crimes. So Sudan is a disappointment for its people and for those uh, of us watching it externally and hoping that their Sudanese people could have a chance. Yeah, we have these two generals who basically are just uh, duking it out to see who's going to come out and talk with no concern for the people of uh, Sudan. Let's move on to perhaps um, possibly a lighter story. Uh, we've seen Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince and de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. He's on a rebrand. And guess what? A Saudi woman blasted off into space in April. Yes, that's been an incredible story. And I think the story of Mohammed bin Salman's efforts to uh, liberalize, so to speak, the, the very strict and restrictive laws in Saudi Arabia when it comes to women's rights is, is being an ongoing background story and certainly a big public relations outreach since 2016-17. Um, I think we have to separate two issues. What's happening in terms of women's rights and the issue of 
rights and freedoms in Saudi Arabia. There has been progress on women's rights under Mohammed bin, bin Salman, and that has to be celebrated. It's not much, but it is something. On the other hand, that hasn't translated into a real opening in Saudi Arabia when it comes to freedoms, individual rights and freedoms and democracy and so on. Uh, the regime has kept a very tight lid on dissent and, um, and really is not showing much opening when it comes to free speech issues where there have been people detained for what they've written on social media, even women's groups, uh, women uh, who have been detained for what they've written on social media. So a mixed bag in that sense uh, when it comes to Mohammed bin Salman's record. Mixed bag. Okay. Let us move on to the next headline, a desperate migrant story, a boat sinks off the coast of Greece with a huge loss of life. It's really hard to um, have one size fits all to some of the migration challenges we see all over the world. This is a constant theme in the United States, in Europe, in Asia. And I think it's going to be the story of the next couple of decades. In Europe, we tend to focus on migration from Africa. The countries have different plans, proposals, ideas, sometimes deals with Turkey or Morocco and so on. But really what we're not doing is addressing some of the root causes of migration in Africa and the MENA region, the Middle East. People are fleeing for all types of reasons. It's poverty, it's governance issues, it's lack of freedoms, it's wanting to have a future, but it's an ongoing story and an ongoing challenge for governments. And you know that very well from living in uh, Britain, how what a big part of the debate, domestic debate that is in the UK. But we don't really have templates. We don't really have, we have sh uh, short-term measures and deals such as the deal between EU and Turkey which allows Turkey to keep immigrants, illegal Im migrants in return for billions of euros. All of these are short-term remedies. And I think that it is important at some point for governments to start tackling the migration issue as we do climate change. It is a global problem and global problem that has to do with what's happening in countries of origin. Okay, let's go on now. We're into July, and here's Bibi, Mr. Netanyahu, on how to stay out of jail, take out the Israeli judiciary. Really dramatic events in Israel in July. Proposed judicial reforms. We know that they would dramatically shift the balance of power in the Israeli government and sort of take away some of the checks and balances that people felt uh, was part of the Israeli system. And, uh, and we're on the streets, mass pro protests and condemnation of what was happening. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis, uh, according to some accounts, over a million have taken to the streets to protest the uh, so-called reforms. Of course, this is happening on a background political story is the is that Israel has 
the most far-right coalition that it's had in its history. Uh, Likud, Netanyahu's Likud. Like Netanyahu is in charge, but there are parties in government that are far more right-wing extremists than Likud. And uh, and also the, the sense of this new coalition's idea of Israeli democracy is increasingly resembling the kind of majoritarianism, winner-takes-all, taking away separation of forces and and checks and balances and it's a, it, it's created a real sense of panic and that panic is justifiable because if we leave aside the Israeli Palestinian issue which we'll talk about Israel has been one of the for for its own citizens again leave aside leave leave the Palestinian issue outside Israel has been a democracy for its own citizens and I think there is a justifiable panic that it might turn into an illiberal, majoritarianist, competitive democracy like we see in Hungary or Turkey. You're listening to the Arab Digest and our year-ender podcast with me, William Law, and the Washington-based Middle East analyst, Aslai Adintashbash. Arab Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. August and uh, Putin's chef falls from the sky, but Wagner, the mercenary group, is alive and well in the Middle East and North Africa. Exactly. What an incredible story it has been. Yevgeny Prigozhin's rise from being a military contractor, in fact, Putin's chef, on to becoming Russia's most important export commodity, a mercenary group in Middle East and Africa that has been very instrumental in expanding Russia's military footprint and influence in uh, in Libya, in Central Africa, and uh, in parts of the Middle East, and so on. But of course, he led a rebellion against Vladimir Putin. That was all on display as a Netflix movie. uh, And uh, we watched it on roll in front of our eyes over 24 hours and was quashed. The moment he lost the potential, the possibility to take control of Moscow, it was a matter of time. He was a dead man walking, and sure enough, uh, he fell from the sky in a plane crash that everyone knew what it was about. It was an an execution of sorts, but that's not the end of Wagner. Now, Wagner is more under Moscow's control. There have been new appointments and new leadership, but it continues to be present in MENA, in Libya, in Africa, as a security provider. And it's not clear whether Western countries can offer the same level of security as as the mercenary group has done to some of these states. So while uh, you see a lot of complaints about Wagner's activities, presence, sprawling presence in Africa or parts of the Middle East, we don't really have much of an alternative to this at this point. The West has not been able to come up with an alternative 
to the security issue and governance issues that we see in these countries. Mm, yeah, yeah, that is a very good point. Let's move on. Uh, I'll slide to September and, and a, a really awful story. Two dams break in the coastal Libyan city of Derna. Bill, it's almost been a delayed symbolic uh, representation of what's happening in Libya, a collapse of the Libyan system. Obviously, this catastrophe is not about politics, but it was a symbol of the breakdown of the public order, uh, the, the sort of the very disappointing situation in uh, in governance, uh, the the failed state that we see in Libya and the the power struggle among UAE, Turkey, Russia, France, Egypt, and so on. Uh, you know, this was a disaster. The breakdown, uh, the two dams breaking in. It it you may say it's got nothing to do with what's happening in on the political space, but it's hard uh, not to see it as a metaphor of that. You know, Libya has had a possibility when the rule of Muammar Gaddafi ended. There was optimism, but it's been a power, disastrous power struggle and a battleground in many parts of the country. I think it's a very sad commentary on what has happened, what has been happening in this beautiful country. Mm -hmm. Tragedy, really. And then the, the headlines get even darker. Uh, the horror, 7th of October, and an afterword of genocide. A real horror on the 7th of October, but also since then with what's happening in Gaza and thousands of Palestinians, uh, many of them women and children who've lost their lives. As we see this unfolding in front of our eyes, it's this is the most uh, graphic war we are watching. More people have lost their lives than in Ukraine when it comes to civilian casualties, with no one end inside. I think Israel has lost nearly all the sympathy it had gained on October 7 after the brutal Hamas attack, with its disregard for Palestinian lives, for civilians, but also its disregard for the world public opinion. Uh, there's a saying that is associated, I think it comes from an Israeli politician. There's light at the end of the tunnel, but the bad news is there is no tunnel. We're in a situation like that. Uh, United States, a huge cost to U.S. as well. Washington has almost provided uh, Israel with a blank check. That was understandable in the, the, the weeks after October 7, but not once the Israeli military campaign started taking a very heavy toll and leading to mass civilian casualties. So the Biden administration has given unconditional support to Israel. It was called a bear hug by President Biden, who went over there and hugged Bibi Netanyahu. And of course, that was understandable in the immediate aftermath of October 7 but not understandable when Israeli military offense, offense in the region started looking more and more like collective punishment. 
We are in a terrible state. I think Americans are trying to recalibrate a little bit, but too little too late. There is no political horizon of any sort and even no no real understanding of Israeli military objectives. I think Israelis have achieved little in terms of their military objectives, but Palestinian civilians continue to lose their lives. And now what we also have is a humanitarian disaster, hunger and uh, disease and homelessness and tens of thousands who have lost their livelihood, their loved ones, and and are trapped in Gaza. I think um, there is an understanding that this is going to isolate United States, that America has lost the global South, that it is going to have very negative repercussions on the conflict in Ukraine, where Western countries led by US and other and, and Europe have been trying to make a moral case that Russia's aggression on Ukraine is an egregious attack on rules-based order. And today, countries turn around and say, what about Gaza? Qatar. Qatar and the hostage releases. Winning friends, gaining influence. This has been a perfect story for Qatar. They have uh, been able to make something out of a very tragic situation. Qatar's has hosted Hamas, their political leadership, for years. Not That wasn't only Qatar's decision, of course. There was an ask from the international community that Qatar be the interlocutor to Hamas. And they have successfully me- carried out a mediation effort uh, with United States uh, and Hamas and Israel and secured the release of hostages and secured a humanitarian pause. The problem is, why hasn't that continued? Why did we stop? Why could we not get more hostages released? And I think the issue is more uh, about Israeli politics. I think Benjamin Netanyahu has not achieved much in terms of his military objectives, the government's military objectives. I think if he was to stop today, and go on with the humanitarian, continue on with the humanitarian pause uh, or a ceasefire, his political fortunes would be in jeopardy. So almost, I think, his political survival depends on the continuation of the conflict. And that is a terrible situation for Israelis and Palestinians. But to go back to Qatar, they have achieved what Turkey hasn't been able to achieve which is using their connections, winning friends, gaining influence. Turkey has not been able to achieve that, even though they too have a relationship with Qatar, have hosted Hamas leaders. The reason is Erdogan has come out in very strong terms in defense of Hamas publicly, whereas Qatar did what a good negotiator has to do, kept low profile and hasn't used controversial firebrand language. You haven't seen the emir of Qatar accusing Israel of genocide publicly in the way Erdogan has. You haven't seen him come out and make fiery speeches on Hamas in the way Erdogan has. And Qatar was rewarded by this incredible diplomatic space. And I think they have used it to their benefit. Let let me jump in there with uh, our final headline. 
good cop or bad cop? How the UAE came out of COP28? Look, there's been some progress in language in a statement on phasing out hydrocarbons, and that is important. But in reality, we are not doing well on climate change. COP, the fact that it's held in UAE is not the problem. The problem is that countries are not really advancing their climate targets. We are uh, more looking into mitigation now as opposed to reduction of carbon emissions. Uh, it's not just UAE, it's United States, it's India, it's China. It's the fact that there's no real Chinese-American dialogue, meaningful progress on this issue. So it's a very sad story. Uh, UAE did fairly okay uh, in hosting it, even though there's been a good deal of controversy on whether or not a, a country that is actually a major hydrocarbon producer should host COP uh, meetings. The next one is likely going to be in Azerbaijan. I mean, almost making a mockery of the process, but the real mockery is not where the location is. The real mockery of climate goals is the fact that we're not, governments and countries and states are not able to take meaningful steps to meet their climate goals. And I worry that 2024 will be worse in that sense. Asli, the, the final big question, your predictions for 2024. I don't have a very optimistic take on 2024. I have a couple of dire predictions. I think the Israeli military operation will continue. And we're going to see growing divergence between Israel and the Biden administration. And I think, given that this is an election year, in United States, and Trump is Biden's potential rival, I think we're going to see Bibi Netanyahu essentially turn his military campaign into an anti-Biden campaign, weighing in on the U.S. elections, banking on a Trump presidency. That's the worst thing that can happen, but I worry that that's the direction that Netanyahu will take because his survival does depend on the continuation of the war in Gaza. My um, second prediction is I think we're going to continue <laughs> to fail on climate goals. I think Turkey will very soon ratify Sweden's NATO accession bid. It's under pressure to do so, pressure from the United States. I feel like Erdogan cannot really hold out until the NATO summit in uh, Washington in July. I do think we might see a proposal from UAE, you know, perhaps, you know, backed by Israel on post-war Gaza reconstruction, but not until the second half of the year. I also don't see it has a real chance of uh, providing viable political horizon for Palestinians, but we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I think on regional war, prospects of regional escalation, something we all fear, have been worried about since October 7, I'm a little bit more optimistic. There seems to be this sort of unwritten 
rules of conduct between United States and Iran, an understanding, a signaling that goes on in terms of not to escalate further. And even though we're seeing skirmishes, a tit-for-tat attacks between Hezbollah and Israel, we're seeing stuff from Houthis, we're seeing uh, more of an escalation on uh, in Iraq, uh, tar- attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq and Syria. I think my sense is that Iran does not want a regional war and, and understands that U.S. does not want a regional war. So my prediction would, could, would be and I could be wrong on this, but my prediction is Iran will be able to rein in Houthis and lead to some type of de-escalation in the Red Sea. Um, perhaps one other prediction. I think we're going to see, well, maybe two other predictions. Here in the United States, there is, you're seeing the Trump effect already court cases against Donald Trump, but Donald Trump increasingly positioning himself as the Republican candidate to run in the next election. But there's a huge debate on democracy. Bob Kagan recently wrote a piece in the Washington Post, which argued that dictatorship, if Trump wins, dictatorship is a possibility. A sense of an imminent illiberal takeover in this country is now in the public discourse, part of the public conversation. And that's going to continue. And finally, as part of that, I think we're going to hear more and more of a debate on US pullout from Iraq and Syria. There have been over 100 attacks on US targets in Iraq and Syria since October 7 by Iran-backed group. And there's about a 1,000 U.S. troops in Syria and a bit more of that in, in Iraq with U.S. contractors, too. We're looking into a few thousand Americans in that region. But I think there will be, a, 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 what in 2024 or 2025, whether it's the Trump administration or a Biden administration, there will be a rethink a major policy review on the on the cost and benefit analysis of keeping Iraq Americans in Iraq and Syria and not to do with the Middle East but perhaps we can predict a labor government in the UK in 2024 but we will see about that that's what i have to say about this coming year well thank you asli and uh, you're quite right whatever happens in america in this coming election year will have a huge impact in the Middle East and North Africa. All that's uh, left for me to do is to uh, wish you the very best in what uh, could be a very troubled 2024. Th- thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. I really wish you a, a good year, healthy year, and to all our listeners, it's going to be a tough year. We need to keep uh, each other company keep listening to the podcast and try to make sense of this very grim geopolitical reality that we're faced with. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Asli Adintashbash. Now, I know this was our year-ender, but the podcast isn't quite finished for 2023. Next week, we feature the editor's choice for 2023, and this year, it is Helen Lackner's keenly insightful podcast, Remember Yemen. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, 
It's been listened to more than 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. We're happy to bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. If you're enjoying our podcast and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please do consider a small donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. To all our listeners and Arab Digest members, a big thank you for your support over 2023, and we wish you the very best throughout the holiday season and into 2024. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.